The scripture text that we are going to read this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, uh, specifically verses 17 to 27. Now, like I said in the announcements, this is the last of three weeks in a very short series that are really first drafts of the talks for the, the, uh, the three-week series exploring Christianity, the course uh, exploring Christianity that we're going to be uh, uh, doing this fall. Now, so as a result, it's not your typical sermon series, but that doesn't mean that we're not still grounded in what we're talking about in the Bible, and that's exactly what we want to emphasize here. So if you're able, let me invite you to stand as I read this, and when I'm done reading, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the Word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. And as he, that's Jesus, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In 1952, a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick was trying to swim the Catalina Channel. It's uh, 20 miles of Pacific Ocean between Catalina Island and the coast of Southern California. And she didn't make it. She almost made it, but she didn't make it. And she, wasn't, she didn't make it not because she wasn't capable of making the swim. She had made similar uh, swims like that before. But it was so foggy on that day when she was attempting it, so foggy that she could hardly see the ships that were sailing alongside of her as she was swimming. And after swimming for about 15 hours, just total exhaustion set in. And she begged to be pulled from the water. And they did. And just as they got her onto the boat, the fog lifted just enough for her to be able to see the edge of the California shore. She was less than a mile away. The next day at a news conference, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I, had, if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. If she had just been able to see the horizon. See, everyone looks to the horizon. All of us, we're all thinking about the future, and we all place our hope in whether or not we're going to get there in something. Now, I'm assuming if you're here that you desire to keep on swimming. Some of you just aren't sure if there really is a coast that you're swimming towards, and you aren't sure whether you'll have the strength to get there. And so the question this week, the question that we're looking at, the big question of life, what's next and how do I get there, it's really a question of hope. Is there something on the horizon? 
and how do I get there? So I want to talk about hope. I want to define what it is quickly. I want to discredit what we often look to as false hope, and then I want to show you what the true hope really is. Now, let's start quickly by defining hope. Uh, Shane Lopez was a a PhD professor of business at the University of Kansas. He worked for the Gallup organization for years, a leading researcher on this topic of hope and how people perceive uh, this concept. And he points out, quite helpfully, I think, that hope for a long time has been improperly confused with wishing, right? Wishing, sort of a blind, passive expression of something that you want, but you're not really sure it's going to happen. You know, I wish that were true. But he says that's sloppy to confuse the terms. He said that's, that it's, it's really sloppy. He said because hope is more active than that. And he's absolutely correct at that point. In order for hope to be meaningful, it has to be more than wishing. It has to be grounded in something. It has to be supported by something. It has to have a reason. Now, I actually think, and I would propose as, a, as an alternative definition, what we have on the front of our bulletins, that quote from, from Paul Tripp, I think that's a pretty good I think that's a pretty good shorthand definition. What is hope? He says that hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. A confident expectation of a guaranteed result. Right? That's how I want to define hope. All right, so that's, that's point number one. Short point, right? Two more to go. But, 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 the, but it's important. You have to start there. Right? Hope is not some form of wishing. For hope to be hope, it has to give real confidence, and that's important. But there is so much false hope out there, so much that, that claims to give you some sort of grounding, but really, really doesn't. Let me give you a short preview of, uh, of our Calvary conversation that we're going to have uh, this summer. So every quarter, uh, we get together around a particular topic, and usually we read something or we watch something uh, on our own, and, uh, and then we come together and we talk about that. So the Calvary conversation that we're going to have um, probably the, the, at the beginning of August, um, is going to be around uh, or based on a movie, uh, originally a play, called The Sunset Limited. Um, and, 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 in, and in The Sunset Limited, this question of hope, whether we can have any certainty about our, certainty about our future, is, is right at the center of it. Now, The Sunset Limited, let me give you a little bit of background because it's not going to make any sense, this quote that I'm going to read to you. Um, it, was, uh, it was turned into a, a TV movie, an HBO movie in 2011, uh, that uh, starred Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson, right? So two A-list kind of actors. And it's absolutely brilliant acting. It's a, it's a riveting script. And the whole play and the whole movie is really just one scene with these two characters sitting and talking to each other about the meaning of life. And there's two characters. There's, there's Mr. White, who is played by Tommy Lee Jones. And he's an atheist college professor who is, who is in despair. He's hopeless. In fact, he had thrown himself in front of a train trying to end his life. The, the Sunset Limited, that's the name of the train. Tried to kill himself. But he's saved, he's pulled off of the tracks by Mr. Black, who was played by Samuel L. Jackson, who is a working poor ex-convict who became a Christian while he was in prison. And the whole movie is just the two of them talking about the meaning of life. Well, there's this one spot in the movie where Mr. White, Tommy Lee Jones' character, is explaining his view of the finality of, of death and the, and the hopelessness that he feels. Now, I'll read it to you from the script of the original play. This is what he says. He says, eternal life? <laughs> Man, he says, show me a religion instead that prepares one for death, for nothingness. He said, there's a church I might enter. Yours, he's talking to Mr. Black about the Christian church, he said, yours prepares yourself, prepares one for only more life, 
for dreams and illusions and lies, but the shadow of the axe hangs over every joy. Every road ends in death. Now, that's incredibly depressing, isn't it? But it actually gives you a better sense of Mr. White, because if that's what you thought, if that's where you sort of thought life was was headed, if that was your view of the, of the future, then his hopelessness, his despair, well, it begins to make a little bit of sense. Now, you might challenge me here and kind of say, okay, those philosopher, philosophical professor atheist types or whatever, they're probably at the extreme. And you say, I see lots of people who are, who are, maybe they're not Christians, but they seem to be hopeful, at least they claim to be hopeful about different things. And I'm not actually questioning the fact that there are those who, who don't come from a Christian viewpoint who do have some type of hope. In many cases, they, they, they do or they claim to, but what I want people to consider, what I want you to consider is, should they have hope? Right? Is there any basis for their hope? Or is it just a professed hope? Maybe a false hope? All right, for example, let me give you another example. Move on from the atheistic college professor. Remember Steve Jobs, right? He was the founder of, of Apple Computer, the creative genius behind the iPhones that all of you carry in your in your pockets, an early champion of hope through digital technology. And yet, I don't want to deny that uh, there's great benefit that have been brought from the, the fact that we carry in our pockets computing power that's greater than the computers that took the first astronauts to the moon. And yet, I think we can all see how some of that enthusiasm has been tempered a bit in, in recent years. Because while the, the smartphone revolution has brought about tremendous convenience, tremendous efficiency in so many areas, there is a tremendous cost associated with it as well. Right? Constant connectivity has its costs. And it's a very striking correlation to see the sharp rise in rates of depression, in rates of anxiety, the opposite of hope, to see the sharp rise in them almost perfectly correlated to the introduction of the iPhone in 2007. So technology doesn't offer a, a great deal of ultimate hope either, right? The atheistic college professor has no hope to offer us. Technology doesn't have, digital technology doesn't have an ultimate hope to offer us. Neither do the typical sort of naturalistic approaches to understanding the world. You know, we come from nothing, we'll go to nothing, but it's all okay. That would be different than what Mr. White was saying. He was saying, we come from nothing, we go to nothing, and it's not okay, it's terrible. Well, there are those who say, we come from nothing, we go to nothing, but that's good. For example, go back to Steve Jobs for a second, because in a graduation speech in 2005, now it's almost 20 years ago, but it's graduation season, so it, it kind of gets pulled out a lot. You might see clips of it on YouTube kind of recirculating. Now, a graduation speech, of course, just think about this for a second. If there's ever an opportunity, an occasion that's sort of designed for hope, it's a graduation speech. Right? I mean, if you're giving the graduation speech at a university, right, that's kind of why they're paying you the big honorarium to be a, a messenger of hope to all of these graduates. Now, in this speech, to be fair, I think Steve Jobs was trying to be hopeful, but, but see what you think. He was talking about how, how his um, diagnosis with pancreatic cancer had brought him to reflect on the meaning of life and death, but this is what he says. He says, no one wants to die, and yet death is the destination we all share. Now, that's, that, up to this point, that's kind of what Mr. White was saying, right? right? No one has ever escaped it, he says. Now, but this is where Jobs differs. He says, and that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. 
It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, he says, the new is you. But sometimes he's talking to the graduates. You're the new now, but someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Now, Steve Jobs, of course, died in 2011 of the pancreatic cancer that he had been battling. And that's terrible. And that's sad. And that's a reflection that what he was saying was, was true. Death, absent God's intervention in the world before that, is a destination we all share. But I want you to think about his, his philosophy for a minute. How was he trying to be hopeful? Well, what he was trying to argue is that we, we have to face the reality of death because death is actually a good thing. It's as it should be, he says. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old. It makes way for the new. And we should welcome it because it, it makes us better. Now, to be honest, right, does that, does that make you feel really hopeful as you consider your own, your own mortality, as you consider the death of a, of a loved one? It doesn't. The philosophical atheistic approach fails. The technological solution fails. The naturalistic offer of hope fails. They're all false hopes. Now, there is one other source of hope that sounds a lot more religious and is a lot more common in churches that people rely on, including many Christians, people who call themselves Christians anyway. It's a hope that's based on our own efforts. It's a hope that's based on all of our good work. Now, this is where we go back and look at Mark chapter 10. Look, go back at Mark chapter 10 and look at verse 17 with me. Good teacher, this man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, notice how he addresses Jesus. Good teacher, he calls him. And Jesus seems to shoot him down, right? Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. What's Jesus doing? Seems a little bit cranky here, right? Well, first, he's not saying that he's not good. Jesus is indeed good. That's not what he was saying. What Jesus is doing is taking the opportunity to teach this man something that is absolutely critical for him to understand, that no one is good except God alone. Now, in one sense, Jesus is asserting that he's God, but primarily he is challenging this man's definition of good because, in fact, it does seem that this man considers himself to be pretty good. Right, look at how Jesus draws it out of him. In verse 19, he says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, these laws that Jesus is giving him here, they come from the, they come from the Ten Commandments. That's the, the summary of the law in ten points that God had given to the people of Israel to show them how to live as, as God's people. And the commands that Jesus are, is quoting here, the ones he's quoting, are how how we are to relate to those around us. There were other commandments about how we're to relate to God. But at least on, on this account, the commandments that Jesus gives this man, the man thinks he's doing okay. In fact, he's pretty confident about his ability to keep God's commands. He declares in verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. In other words, if God were to say to this man, what's your hope? What are you trusting in for your eternal future? right? That's the answer this guy would give. He would say, I'm trusting in my rule-keeping, in my ability to keep from my youth all of these commandments. But see, here's the deal. Here's why that's a, that's a false hope, because most people, when they say that they keep the rules, when they say they keep uh, the, the commandments, what they mean by that is that they keep them better than other people. All right, for example, if I were to ask you to rate your goodness on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best, absolute perfect goodness, Right? What would you give yourself? How would you rate yourself? 
Now, if you ask this question, and I have, to a variety of people in a variety of different settings, the most common answer that you get is somewhere around a six or a seven. Right? And I would venture to guess that if you're sitting here this morning, that's probably where you would probably put yourself. You would do a little mental math, and you wouldn't want to be bragging on yourself, but you'd do a little mental math, and you'd say, I know I'm not perfect, but, you know, I don't steal, at least not big stuff. Right? I don't lie, right? not most of the time. I give to charity. Right? I've never killed anyone. Right? I pay my taxes. I don't drive through red lights, at least when there's those cameras there. Right? Right? That's what you'd say. Now, sometimes the answers are a little more religious sounding. Right? They go like this. They say, I, you know, I think God thinks I'm pretty good because I, I go to church at least three out of four. Right? I don't take God's name in, in vain. I've been baptized at least once. I take the Lord's Supper. Right? I pray. And that's more than most people can say. That's what you'd say. And actually, that's true, right? Doing a lot of those things is more than most people can, can say. And that's how we feel totally justified in saying, eh, not perfect, not, you know, but not terrible, clearly better than average, eh, six or a seven. But what Jesus is doing here with this man is showing us in this conversation that that kind of comparison is a false hope because it's comparing ourselves to the wrong thing, right? The issue is not whether you are better than me. In many cases, I would assert to you that is absolutely true. You probably are. The issue is how all of us match and compare to God himself. Because no one is good, Jesus says, but God alone. He is genuinely and completely good. Now, interestingly, of course, Jesus commands us, still commands us to be good. He's right to do that. That is our standard if our goal is eternal hope. The problem is that our effort, our own work, is a very poor basis for that hope. But that's what this guy in Mark chapter 10 is relying on. What must I do, he says, to inherit eternal life? Now, I just want to stop again for a second here because to our modern Western minds, that, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense, right? God helps those who help themselves. Many people think that's in the Bible. It's not, right? We think that no work, no eternal life. It's very ingrained in our culture, and we, and we tend to admire people with this kind of attitude that they have, right? For example, right, this uh, 1998 movie, Saving Private Ryan, and I want to be careful here. Actually, I want to honor those. We just celebrated D-Day this past week. Saving Private Ryan, this film directed by Steven Spielberg, starred Tom Hanks, Matt Damon, right, set in the days immediately following the Allied landings in France in June 1944, right? It's a very hard movie to watch. It's not for everyone, right? But it was a needed film to be made because of the way that it depicted both the absolute horror of warfare and the sacrifice of a generation that defended freedom in the 20th century. It tells the story of a, a fictional um, Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, who takes his small company of army rangers behind enemy lines to rescue Private James Ryan, who's played by Matt Damon. And ultimately, Miller succeeds, right? He does that. He finds Private Ryan. He rescues him. But in the final battle, Captain Miller is mortally wounded. He's dying. And it's an incredibly moving scene. He sacrificed his life to save this young private. But right as he's about to die, Captain Miller calls out to, to Ryan. And he says, come here. He pulls him close. And with his dying breath, he says, James, earn this. Earn it. You get that? In other words, he's saying, I've done this for you. I've rescued you. Now you need to pay it back and make yourself worthy of it. Now, like I said, there is a part of us that connects with that, 
on the surface. It has a dramatic, it has an inspirational feel to it. And I'm not belittling the sacrifice. The problem is there's not much hope in earning our own goodness. Because even when we try, we pretty quickly realize that the inspirational challenge of earning it actually crushes us when we attempt to live out that that life. It's what happens, interestingly, for Private Ryan in the movie. In the closing scene of the movie, well, you're more than 50 years later now, and you have an elderly James Ryan standing at the, the grave of Captain Miller in the American cemetery on Omaha Beach in France, in Normandy. And he's talking to the gravestone, and he looks down, and he speaks to the grave of Captain Miller, and he says, every day, I think about what you said to me that day. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that it was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. And then he turns to his wife, tears in his eyes, almost desperate, and he says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And again, this is a man of honor. And yet there is ins- there's something that's just incredibly sad about the fact that he lived his life with that kind of weight, not with gratitude, but with a weight, a, a pity for a man who lived his whole life trying to prove his goodness and now is still not even sure whether he can possibly measure up. And guess what? He can't. You can never repay a debt like that. You can never repay a debt of someone who has sacrificed for you with the ultimate sacrifice. No, our hope is not in technology. It is not in the great big circle of life. It is not in our own effort. Our hope, our only hope, is in, the, is in this man that, 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 that this rich young ruler is talking to. Our only hope is in Jesus. It's in a Savior who offers us true hope. Now, that's the final point. Now, here's the thing. If you knew about Jesus from what we've been talking about the last three weeks, you'd know that we'd have a problem if you've just kind of been following along. If the only thing you knew about Jesus is what we've been saying the last couple of weeks, well, then you say, well, wait a minute. Last week, when we left Jesus, he was dead. <laughs> and everybody knew it. The disciples knew it. The Roman governor knew it. Everybody knew it. So if there's not much hope in Jesus if you just know what we talked about last week because, because he's still dead. But in Mark chapter 16, the end of Mark's gospel, fascinating things happens. A few of the women who were disciples of Jesus, they show up at the tomb on Sunday morning. This is the third day after Jesus had died, and they encounter an angel. And the angel says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Now, that's a pretty bold claim. And you might find it hard to believe. Some people find it hard to believe that anyone could ever be raised from the dead. I don't want to trivialize that struggle. And there's a lot of very good discussion that we can have about that, about how you can really believe historically that Jesus was raised from the dead. But for now, and with the time that we have, let's just admit that this is, in fact, what the Bible clearly teaches, that Jesus was actually truly, really dead, and that he was really physically, truly alive. Now, let's also admit that if he is risen, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it confirms everything that he had said about himself. All of his teaching is now validated. All of what he said about himself is now true. Everything that we said last week about what his death on the cross was accomplishing now becomes our absolute certain hope. Because his rising from the dead would have showed that the sacrifice he offered has been accepted. See, here's where the game really changes. Lots of people die, right? And some deaths, there might be something noble in them, a a significant legacy, but at the end of the day, they're still dead. The same would be true for Jesus unless, unless he really did 
rise. Think about this for a minute, right? Jesus was in his early 30s when he died. And yet, despite all the things that he did in his life, all the good teaching that he had, in in spite of the the, the nobly, you know, noble death of of, of a martyr, all of that would have meant nothing if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. We probably would have never heard of him. He would have been just another poor, itinerant teacher who roamed the countryside in that region, who claimed to be the Messiah and got himself killed for it because he found himself on the wrong side of the authorities. He was not the first kind of person who would have fit that description. He was not the last. The difference is the resurrection changed everything. And it means our hope is not a wish. It has a ground. Because the resurrection proves that God has accepted the death of Jesus in my place. Full, final payment for my personal rebellion against him. It's like a receipt. It proves that the ransom price has been paid. That is the great hope of the resurrection because it conclusively demonstrates that Jesus not only has the power and authority over his own death, but the power and authority over ours as well. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn it. It is totally and completely by God's grace, given by him, received by us. Now, it's been, um, I think, almost a year by my calculation since I've mentioned Les Miserables. Um, and so it's time to, time to pull it out again. I just can't get away from it because if you, if, you, if you want to understand the hope of a Christian, right, you have to understand grace. And, and, and because grace is just at the heart of Christianity and how it differentiates from every other system of belief, and I still think that this is one of the best illustrations of grace that you can find. Les Miserables is the, the fictional story, for those of you who aren't familiar, for those of you who haven't been here and heard me talk about it over and over again, right? It's the fict- fictional story written by Victor Hugo set in the early 1800s in France. And the main character is this guy by the name of Jean Valjean. He's a desperate ex-convict who has just been released from prison, and he's desperate for food, he's desperate for lodging, and because he's an ex-con, no one will give him, no one will, will help him, no one will take him in, except this local clergyman, this bishop. And the bishop doesn't just throw him some food out the door and tell him he can sleep in the barn. The bishop actually invites him into his home. He gives him a seat at the table. He feeds him a meal. He he allows him to spend the night, sleep in a real bed with with, with sheets. And yet Valjean, for all the kindness that was shown to him, he's still a bitter man. He's still angry. And in the middle of the night, while the bishop is sleeping, he steals the bishop's silver. And he assaults the bishop. And he runs away. Now the next day, he's brought back to the bishop by three local constables. He's caught by the police, red-handed. He's brought back to the bishop's house. And he gives the officers this story about how he really didn't steal the silver. I didn't steal it. He gave it to me. Right? Kind of flimsy. But that's the, that was his alibi. And so things look pretty desperate for him. He's, he's hanging his head in shame. He, the, the constables are about to check. They're about to verify this, this story of his with the bishop himself. And the bishop has the power with his testimony, with just a word, to send Valjean back to to, to prison for the rest of his life. But instead, you have this remarkable scene where the bishop basically goes along with the flimsy story that Valjean gave the constables. And the constables are stunned. And they can't do anything about it because they've got testimony. They don't have any... The evidence that they have is now now explained by the testimony of this bishop. So they, they let Valjean go. They have to. And after they're gone, the bishop insists that Valjean actually keep the silver, right? It wasn't just a story that he was telling. Okay, they're gone. Now give me back my silver. And I said, no, no, you take it. In fact, I got more for you that you didn't take. Take these as well. And Valjean is just standing there with a big dumb look on his face. In one of the movie versions, he says, you know, why are you doing this? And the bishop replies, Jean Valjean, my brother, you, are no, you no longer belong to evil, 
With this silver, I have bought back your soul, and now I'm giving it back to God. Right? Now, that's grace, because I want you to think about this, right? Valjean was guilty, caught red-handed, no question about his guilt or his innocence, he was guilty, and the bishop could have treated Valjean in one of three different ways. He could have treated Valjean with justice, given him exactly what his deeds deserved. He could have said, give me the silver back and off to jail you go. The constables would have taken him. He would have been perfectly within his rights to do it. It would have been justice. No more than he deserves. Exactly what he deserves. And no one would have faulted the bishop for doing it. Right? In fact, I would venture to guess it's what most of us would have done in the similar situation. And it is perfectly just. Now, alternatively, the bishop could have treated Valjean with leniency. He could have said, look, I want my silver back, but I'm not going to press charges. Let's just pretend like this whole thing didn't happen. Erase the slate. We're done. You deserve prison, but I'll be lenient. Just don't do it again, okay? Right? That's how most people would typically think of God and how, and how he relates to his people. So, all right, let's just, let's just pretend like this never happens. Let's just wipe the, the slate clean. We'll go on from here. No harm, no foul. Now, now be good from here on. But the last option what the bishop actually does is absolutely shocking. He doesn't treat Valjean with justice. He doesn't treat him with leniency. He treats him, he shows him grace. He says, I know what you've done. I know how you've abused my generosity. But look, keep the silver. In fact, take these candlesticks as well and you can go free. Go free as a changed man. You see the difference? Not only does he not press charges, he gives the criminal standing in front of him a very expensive gift, one that is totally undeserved and one that probably bankrupts the bishop, right? That is grace. Treating someone with undeserved love and generosity at great cost to yourself. And that's exactly what Jesus did. We will never understand Christianity until we see ourselves in exactly the same position as Jean Valjean. It's why this rich young ruler, for all of his goodness, it's why he didn't get it. It's why when Jesus put his finger on his idol, when he said, yeah, why don't you give, up, give all your money and, sell, and, and, and give it to the poor? Take all your money. It's why the man walked away sad. Because he didn't get it. He didn't understand that all of us stand before God as Valjean stood before the bishop, utterly guilty, deserving judgment for the way that we've abused God's generosity and love for us, and in no way deserving and in no way having the ability to put the situation right on our own. But God, rather than treating us as we deserve, God, in his amazing grace, offers us forgiveness and offers us riches far beyond we could comprehend. It's nothing we earn. It's nothing we deserve. You don't get it by being a nice person. You don't get it by paying your bills on time. You don't get it by going to church and by reading your Bible. Those things are not bad. Hear me. You should do all of those things. But doing them and thinking that you are making yourself acceptable to God, that is not grace. Grace is the reality that we have been given what we do not deserve because Jesus assumed the punishment for what we did. It is understanding that we have been given what we do not deserve because Jesus took the punishment for what we did deserve. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Ultimately, nothing, if that's how you phrase the question. Christianity's rescue is not offered in exchange for something that you do. It is offered on the basis only of what Jesus did. We simply recognize what God has done and receive it by faith. Now, with that, with that truth, we finally really have a confident expectation for the horizon. 
we can know for certainty whether the fog is in front of us at this moment or not, that the horizon is there and that the journey has been made for us. And so we can keep swimming, not in our own strength, but in His. We can be certain about what's next. The, um, let me close with this. The, the funeral for Winston Churchill, the English statesman, prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, it had been planned, the funeral had been planned by official order of the queen for years before he actually died. And, and, and when he did die, it was an extremely elaborate day, a magnificent ceremony in St. Paul's Cathedral. But at the end of the funeral service, they did something very, very interesting. They had two trumpeters positioned high in the dome of, of St. Paul's. And one of them, the first one to play, played the traditional taps. You know, it's, it's called the last post, right? It's what you would expect as a, as a military honor at a, at a state funeral. It's what's played at the end of the day at military institutions, uh, bases and, and such. And it was fitting for the death of Winston Churchill, right? The last post. This was the end of, a, of an era. But then, after that was played, right, in what would not have been expected, after the last post, another solo trumpeter started to play, Reveille. Reveille, which is played by the bugler at the beginning of the day. It's the universal signal that a new day is dawning, that it's time to arise. Now, I've read a number of biographies about Winston Churchill. I don't know whether or not he personally understood the theological significance of this gesture, but it is hugely significant. Because whether it was intentional on his part or not, that moment was a clear testimony, as Billy Graham once said in another funeral service, clear testimony that at the end of history, the last note will not be taps. The last note will be reveille. There is hope beyond the grave because Jesus Christ has opened the door for heaven to us by His death and by His resurrection. There is the true hope for our future, a hope that is guaranteed absolutely, solidly by Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for giving to us a hope that we cannot provide for ourselves by giving us a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. Lord, I do pray, though, that You would help each of us to see ourselves as in need of that. And if we have not put our trust and received by faith this offer of eternal life through Jesus, that You would move our hearts to do that. And Lord, for those of us who have claimed that faith, maybe have known that faith and had that confidence for years, Lord, would you use that knowledge and that truth to strengthen us as we swim towards the shore. Help us to realize, Lord, that ultimately you are not calling us to do anything that you have not accomplished for us already and that you will provide the strength for us to do. So, Lord, help us to keep swimming in the confident expectation that the horizon is there. And that you will one day welcome us into your glorious presence with an eternal riches beyond all that we can comprehend. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.